0: Today's scripture comes to us from John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So they asked him, Then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you a prophet? He answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? Tell us that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John said, I am the voice of one shouting in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. So they asked John, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. Among you stands one who will not who you do not recognize, who is coming after me. I'm not worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. These things happened in Bethany across the Jordan River where John was baptizing. On the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this is the one about whom I said, After me comes a man who is greater than I am because he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but I came baptizing with water so that he could be revealed to Israel. Then John testified I saw the Spirit descending like a dove from heaven, and it remained on him. And I did not recognize him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, The one on whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have both seen and testified. That this man is the chosen one of God. The word of the Lord. So, from last Sunday
1: through Easter, we're going to be um, going through the gospel according to John. And there's this joke that gets told in seminaries. um, So, you know, it's probably not going to be very funny. Uh, But there's some truth to it, so I'm going to tell it anyways. That there's a young seminarian who goes into preaching class and on the first day the, uh, the preaching professor asks all the students to name their favorite book of the Bible. And they all go around the class and then they get to this one young woman and she says, well, my favorite book of the Bible is the gospel of John. And then the professor stops and he looks over the end of his glasses and he says, you just wait until you try to preach it. The implication being that John is a very difficult gospel to preach, which we will see over the next course of the last next few months how difficult it is to preach from the gospel of John. John is interesting. They say make your illustrations as broadly applicable and understandable as possible. Uh, this is going to be contrary to that this time. Um, it's sort of like if you've ever played the Super Mario Brothers games. Uh, there's like Mario Brothers 2, um, and it's a very different kind of game. Um, than Mario 1 or Mario 3 or the rest of them. Well, John is the Mario Brothers 2 of Gospels, if that makes any sense to you at all. And if not, just know it's the same but different. But despite its sophisticated theology and philosophy, the story of Jesus told by John, it will preach. And in fact, I think it is surprisingly practical in the ways that it is applicable to faith and life today. And so last week we started with the prologue to John's gospel. And the punchline that's right in there in verse 14, that the word became flesh and dwelled among us. And so John zoomed all the way out and he said that the God of the universe took up residence in his creation in the man Jesus. Full of grace and truth. And that's what the rest of the story is about. But now John zooms in, all the way in on this other John. A John with a nickname, John the Baptist. And so in this sermon, it might get a little confusing as I talk about John, the gospel writer, and John, the Baptist. I will try to avoid that um, with clarity of language. So let's not not get confused. Gospel of John and John the Baptist. And it's to this story and his relationship to the story of Jesus that we turn. And so we're going to look at two things in this passage about John. Who John isn't and who John is. And then we're going to look at who Jesus is. All right, so first, who John is? And, and in the gospel of John, by, by putting John the Baptist first, and, and the way that John tells his story, is in many ways, John the Baptist is kind of the ideal disciple in relationship to Jesus. So even though John never technically becomes a disciple of Jesus and follows Jesus, the way that he relates to Jesus is, is an ideal And so we can learn a lot from from what it means to be an ideal disciple or ideal in our relationship to Jesus from John. And so because John is this ideal, it it makes sense not just because explaining his relationship to Jesus is important as a historical matter, but it's important when it comes to understanding um, how we can be in relationship with him, with Jesus. And so we know that John the Baptist was out in the Judean wilderness and, and he was baptizing people in the River Jordan, which basically that means he was giving them a bath. They were going out in the river, and he was plunging them beneath the waters, and, and he was washing them. And quite this movement had formed around him. I mean, John is so famous in, in the kind of contemporary historical record in relationship to Jesus. For, for some people, John was much more famous and noteworthy than Jesus. Jo- Josephus, the Jewish historian, mentions John. And so quite this movement had formed around John, and his fame and his influence had grown to the point where the religious authorities in Jerusalem said, we have to send some people to investigate this and find out exactly what it is that John the Baptist was up to. And so these priests and Levites get sent out from Jerusalem, and and the priests and Levites, they represent the temple system. They represented religion as it had worked for centuries. So if you wanted forgiveness if you wanted peace if you wanted a right relationship with god you could go to the temple and it was a, it was a, an amazing place because in the temple you know your sins could be atoned for praises could be offered vows could be made and fulfilled requests great and small could be lifted up to the heavens like so much smoke and incense from the altar heaven was the center of the universe it was the connection point between heaven and earth between the people and god And so here was John, out in the wilderness, not drawing people to the temple, but calling them out into the wilderness. And we know from the other Gospels that he was preaching this message of repentance. And telling people to get ready because God was about to do something great. And he was having people wash themselves. And, and, and Jews, they knew all about washing. Washing was an important part of ritual purification in daily life. But John wasn't just, you know, telling them to wash up, sort of like you wash your hands before dinner. John was plunging them in the river. And, and this was a rite of, for converts to Judaism. And so essentially the message he was sending, you know, implicitly and, and really explicitly to, was that what's happening in Jerusalem, what's happening with the temple, that stuff there is not working. And in fact, it's about to come under God's judgment. He's saying, if you want to get with, right with God, don't go there, but instead come here. And so you can imagine that this message that John was saying did not sit well with the temple and religious, and even political elite classes of Jerusalem. And so they sent these folks out to John to ask him pointedly, who are you? Who are you that you're doing the things you're doing and saying the things that you're saying? Who are you, basically, that gives you the right, the authority to do this? And it's really important to note that the first words, you know, spoken by anyone in this gospel are a question. We're going to see time and time again in John. Really, John is very interested. John, the gospel writer, is interested in good questions just as much as he is in offering good answers. And so John, according to what everyone could tell, he he really didn't have an official status to be saying what he was saying or doing what he was doing. And he had no right to be as powerful or as popular as he was. And yet people are streaming out to the desperate to hear him, and to be baptized by him. Who are you? That is a wonderfully pointed question. And it's not just directed at John the Baptist, right? This is a question that we can hear directed at each and every one of us. Who are you? How would you answer that question? I hear that question, I think, oh, uh, I'm David Berge, uh, I'm a pastor. I'm the husband of Amy. I'm the father of Kyle, Peter, and Gregory. Uh, uh, I'm an ex-rapper. Um, uh, but who are you? And here's how John answers his the question. They says, so identify yourself. Who are you? And John says, okay. I'll tell you. I am not the Messiah. And so they ask him this question that, they are assuming has a positive answer to it. Who are you? Tell us positively what your identity is. And John answers in the negatively, here's who I am not. I think there's much more wisdom in John the Baptist's approach to answering this question than we tend to appreciate. Happy is the person who knows who he or she is not. A lot of hard-won life experience comes from figuring out exactly who you are not, right? There's a lot of wisdom in that for all of us because when you know who you aren't, you don't have to try to be that person anymore. And so the first thing John knows, he says, I am not the Messiah. Also, a lot of wisdom in that statement for all of us. It's not your job to be the Messiah. If you're a Christian, you don't have to be Christ. That job has already been filled by someone who is not you. But in denying that he was the Messiah, John obviously saw what, what the people were expecting and saying about him, right? There was lots of different expectations in different groups of Jews in the first century about who the Messiah was. But they all coalesced around this idea of this royal figure this kingly figure who was going to come back and restore the davidic kingdom to all of its glory so this meant a reassertion of jewish self-rule and dominance in the promised land it meant goodbye romans and goodbye to the the collaborators you know the the vichy jews who 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 ruled hand in hand with them in jerusalem there's going to be a, a renewal of religious life a, a a renewal of the temple there's going to be this national you know awakening people are going to be keeping the law and it meant, too, that, that finally, instead of, you know, nations coming, these great nations, and, and Israel is like this, you know, um, tennis ball that gets just knocked back and forth between all these great powers. You know, finally, these great powers are going to come to Jerusalem, and they're not going to come there to, 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 to pillage and to go in the temple and take the gold and silver. They're going to go there to pay homage. They're going to stream to pay their respects. Instead of taking things, they're going to start pouring in their treasures to the temple. Right, the Messiah represented the hope of a new political, military, and religious golden age. Right, someone who is going to make Israel great again. Hashtag MIGA. Clearly, I'm making reference to the classic 1980s campaign slogan from the Gipper himself. He, he's the one who came up with the other one, but the Messiah was the great figure. Right, Jews of all stripes we're hoping and praying for and so the first thing that john makes sure is that his inquisitors understand is this i am not the one everyone has been waiting for john does not have a messiah complex no delusions of grandeur you know that that he's the only person that's going to be able to fix what's wrong with god's people but he still hasn't answered their question and so they ask him a different question What, what then are you elijah Okay, so if John isn't the one everyone's been waiting for, maybe he's the one before the one everyone's waiting for. If he's not the last man, maybe he's the next to last man. And in the Bible, Elijah, you know, he's this prophetic figure. He doesn't die in a strange scene in, in 2 Kings 2. He's transported directly into heaven by a whirlwind. And in the Bible, when you don't die, that's a weird thing. Everyone else dies. And so lots of stories come around. You see this with the figure of uh, Enoch in the Old Testament. It doesn't say that he died. So uh, there was a whole literature around this figure of, of Enoch. These these people took on this significance because they're going to come back from God and have an important role to play in, in God's future. And so in, in at the very end of our Old Testament, so if you go to Malachi uh, 4 and, and you read it, Elijah features right there that he's this figure who's coming right before this promised day of the Lord, this day of of judgment um, for the wicked and for restoration for the righteous. And so it says right at the end of Malachi, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome, or sometimes great and terrible, day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of their children, uh, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So they go, what. John the Baptist, is that you? And he goes, it's not me. And so then they ask him, well, are you the prophet? And this is a reference to, uh, in in Deuteronomy 18, Moses is giving his goodbye sermon. And and so he he gives this promise to the Israelites in the wilderness that he's going to die, but he says, don't worry, there's going to be another prophet like me coming sometime in the future. It says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And the Lord said to me, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. All right, so basically there's going to be another Moses coming, another great national leader and and religious figure. And so we can tell at this point that John is getting fed up with their questions because he gives a simple one-word answer, no. No. And we can see what these investigators from Jerusalem are doing. They're trying to fit John into one of their pre-existing categories. But when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to the gospel, those pre-existing categories just don't work. There's that saying someone said about old wine and new wineskins. They don't mix. When God does a new thing, it can't be contained and constrained by the former things. And the gospel is good news. And news, by its very definition, is new. By relating it to something old, that's how we understand something new. But the problem is that when, when that old something becomes not just a you know helpful frame of reference, but, but a box... To limit and contain the work of God. I think often of when we think of what cooperative ministry is here. It's like that some of the things that came before it. But it's unlike them in important ways too. But if this is a work of God doing something genuinely new amongst us. For the sake of the good news. What can we do but keep doing what we're doing? Right, John the Baptist, he had a message and a mission. That didn't fit with the previous categories. But because God had given him that message and that mission and that ministry, what could he do but do it? Even if it didn't exactly make sense to the people in charge, Because John knew who he wasn't, he wasn't trying to be those things, it enabled him to be able to do who he was, to be who he was, and do what he could do. And so it can be a helpful exercise for all of us to think about who we aren't. Three things that we aren't. John names three things he isn't. And it can be liberating. Can we go, I'm not this, I'm not this. We can start being who we want to be. And I'm I'm going to call someone out not to embarrass them, but I think someone who I've seen embody this really, really well. So Bridget Nelson, we just ordained this morning as an elder. And Bridget, I feel like you're really good at knowing who you are not. And saying no to those things. Like, like Bridget will often give this example of, Bridget is is a really fun person and, and she's great to be around. And so people sometimes peg her as like a party planner. But you're the life of the party. You're not the party planner. And that's an important distinction. But it's a confusion that people make. So people think she's the life of the party. She must love to plan the party. So Bridget, why don't you plan the party? And when that happens, it's not seen to your toe you're good. Right? That, 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 that it's not who you are. And so when you know who you aren't, you don't have to do that and you can flourish as who God has made you to be. I think that's a very real practical example right there. All right, so we know who John isn't, but who is John? So he answers no three times. And you know, we can sort of see the priests and Levites are like, listen, we got sent on this job. And if we go home and tell our bosses, like, if we give them this answer, they're not going to let it stand. So could you please throw us a bone and do us a solid? What do you say about yourself? And John says, I am a voice. He is someone with something to say. He is a voice crying out in the wilderness, make way, make ready the way of the Lord. Right, so John's job is to tell people that someone else is coming after him. The one who's going to set the world straight. The one who would renew and restore and refresh and recreate. John says, I'm not that guy. I'm the guy whose job it is to tell you to get ready for that guy. John the voice is like a siren. And when you hear a siren, what happens? You, you pay attention. You might even start to slow down and pull over to the side of the road. And the reason you do that is because you know that there's some kind of emergency vehicle that is coming. So John the voice is a siren blaring in the wilderness telling people, Get ready. God is coming. So John is a voice. He knows that about himself. He also knows that he's a baptizer. That his job is to get people ready. And one of the ways that he can help get people ready is get them washed up. Because a king is coming. And so he understands that in some strange way, his washing people with water is is one of the ways that the one who is even greater than himself is going to be revealed to Israel. His job is to wash people symbolically, to prepare them for a baptism that will be more than symbolic. A washing that just won't wash the dirt away on the outside of their bodies, but, but will totally clear away the stain of sin that, that is on the inside of each and every human being. So John's a voice, letting people know that someone greater is coming. He's a symbolic washer, getting people ready for the real cleanser of their souls. And the last thing that John knows about himself is he is not worthy. He says, I am not worthy, I am unworthy to untie the straps of Jesus' sandals. And this was the lowest task that someone's slave could perform. And so John understands that the person who is coming after him is so much greater than himself that there's really no comparison between the two. And it's easy to forget, but, but like I said before, John was a really big deal. He was popular. He was famous. He was a celebrity, right? If he wasn't, you know, a king, he was at least a king maker. Someone who, if you were powerful, you had to reckon with this person's authority and popularity. But John is so humble that he he understands the reality that he can't compare who he is with who Jesus is. And his job is to remind people again and again and again, Jesus is up here, and I'm somewhere down there. So John knows three things that he isn't. He knows he's not the Messiah, he's not Elijah, he's not the prophet. He knows three things that he is. He's a voice, he's a baptizer, he is unworthy. And so what are three things that you know that you are? Right. If we just focus on what we aren't, you can have this negative self-image. We just focus on what we are, we can get this inflated sense of ourself and our importance, but when we have this clear understanding of who we are and who we aren't, I think it can be very useful. Who who has God equipped and gifted you to be as you witness and testify with your life, your words, your actions, to the reality of Jesus Christ? So if John is, is presented as this ideal disciple in relationship to jesus we can say this about what it means to be the ideal that it means not focusing on how great or impressive or awesome we are individually as a church right that's always the temptation in this age we compare ourselves to other people and and try to make sure that we're at the top of 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 the sorting and comparison we want this external validation right well i'm up here our church is up here they're they're down there But John shows that if you go around like that, always comparing yourself, always trying to aggrandize yourself, you've missed the whole point, right? The whole point isn't comparing ourselves and sorting ourselves on the scale. It's saying Jesus is up here and the rest of us are all equal. All equal at the feet of Jesus. And so our job as Christians is to be voices saying, get ready to meet him. Do whatever we can to enact the reality of Of the kingdom that we can't bring but can only point to in our own fading and fleeting ways. And to be so humble as to understand that we're not worthy of the things that God has given us to do. No one is. Being a a deacon and caring for people who bear the very image of Christ in themselves. Our deacons aren't worthy to do that. To govern a church of people. Try to point people to the will of Christ for this congregation. Our elders aren't worthy for that preach the word of God and have people listen. I'm not worthy for that job. None of us are. And Amy and Mikey and Katie and and Jay and George and Forrest, they're leading us in, in, in songs of praises that echo in the heavens. They're not worthy to do that. But God has called us and he has gifted us and he has equipped us. He's equipped us to do it nonetheless. And so what can we do? But do what we've been called to do with humility and gratitude and great love all the time. Praising God that he would place his invaluable treasure in clay jars like us. So what John shows us is that as followers of Jesus and the church, we are at our best and most faithful when we're most focused on looking at who Jesus is than looking in the mirror and always worrying about how we look to others or ourselves. right? That's the beautiful hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of the earth will go strange, will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. All right, so we've seen three things John isn't, three things John is. But John's mission, he said, is to point people to Jesus. And so there's three things that he says about Jesus that are important for us to keep in mind as we close. The first come when John sees Jesus coming towards him and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, the first thing we learn about Jesus from John, he's the Lamb of God. And the great irony is that John, this whole time, has been saying, Listen, I'm not that great. This person coming after me is amazing. I'm not even worthy to untie uh, his sandals. You know, there's this great coming figure. So, everyone has this expectation. John is preparing them for this incredible figure, this, you know, ferocious lion. And John says, well, look, here's the Lamb. And in calling Jesus the Lamb of God, he's drawing on this rich, multiple tradition from the Old Testament. We have the Passover Lamb that was slain, and the, the blood was placed on the doorpost. And, and Lintel, as the angel of death, passed over in the Exodus. We have uh, the, the Lamb that sacrificed every morning and evening at the temple, uh, at the temple altar. And, and we have the suffering servant of Isaiah who is led, like a, like a lamb, to slaughter and John says, well, you're looking for this great and powerful king. Instead, you need to be looking for the lamb, because it's the lamb who deals with our major problem. It's the lamb who takes away the sin, singular, of the world. Not the sins that we all commit. Right? John is saying that, that the lamb of God comes to deal with the root problem, not the fruits. And this sin, this this power, this force, this thing that separates us from God, Jesus is going to take on that. And the next thing that John teaches us about Jesus is that he is the one on whom the Spirit of God comes and remains like a dove. And this word remains, it's the same as the word abides, and it's a very important word in John's gospel because wherever God is abiding is where you want to be. It's the place where God is living. And so Jesus is the Lamb of God. He takes away the sins of the world. That's the negative role of Jesus. It's about the forgiveness and removal of sin. But Jesus, the dove bearer of God, is about the gift of the Spirit and the positive role that Jesus plays in not just removing our sin, but in renewing us. Jesus doesn't just affect sin removal. He brings about heart renewal through the gift of the Spirit. And in the Bible, whenever the Spirit comes, it, it, it brings power, it brings life, it brings the very present of God himself. In the Old Testament, the Spirit comes on people, and it, it's always this temporary, sort of charismatic thing. It's here, and then it's gone like the wind. But here we're told that the Spirit remains on Jesus. And so wherever Jesus goes, this dove goes too. And the last thing that John affirms about Jesus is that he's the Son of God we hear that, and if you grew up in a church or a theological setting, all of a sudden you might start thinking about, you know, Trinitarian theology and all this stuff. But, And it's good, but for John, this was a way for him to affirm the royal title of Jesus, a Messianic title. It was a way for him to say that Jesus is indeed the king, the one we've been waiting for. Everything that John said he was not, this Jesus is. And so John's message is, To whoever will listen. Because who exactly he's talking to when he says, look, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. We don't know who's around him at this time. It's not specified. So it's to whoever will listen. That whatever it is you're looking for, whatever it is that you think that you need, if you're not looking for it in Jesus, you're looking in the wrong place. And that's a helpful message for us to hear as we head into the new year. What am I looking for? In two thousand and eighteen, in terms of my life, the political realm, religion, leadership, what am I looking for and if we 're looking for the removal of what 's wrong and w- with us or with the world and, and the renewal of anything anywhere other than jesus we 're sure to be disappointed and so, in the new year, let us resolve not to look for great lions but instead be attentive. For the lamb and the dove. And let us be attentive to him. Lest we be like those of whom John says. And among you stands one you do not know. Jesus was right there. And they couldn't see him. They missed him. Let not the same be true of us. In the name of the Father. And of the Son. And of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.